good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles this morning, Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to pick up right where we left off. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2, really verses 1 through 5 is what we'll read through. Um, so Blake made a joke last week about the fact that we spent three years in the book of, in, in Romans chapter 1. He's not incredibly wrong, um, but one of the dangers of preaching slowly, um, there's great joy in it, there's great precision in it, but there is one danger. And the one danger is that we can often miss the flow of an argument because we've slowed down. And for maybe just a moment, I'd like to remind you of what the early church would have done as they received the letter to the Romans. They would have gathered together and a elder would have opened the scroll. They would have read through this epistle and they would have read through it from start to end. And as they would read through it, you can imagine the, the different flows of arguments that would make their way through the book of Romans, that there would be different responses. And remember that Paul, along with the inspiration of the Spirit, really writes in a way that is meant to be rhetorical in nature. It's meant to appeal to the mind, but it's also meant to appeal to the emotions. It is a solid and it is an incredibly precise argument that Paul makes. But sometimes because of our slowness, we can miss the flow of an argument. And I think we can also miss the affections and how they would have been affected by an entire chapter. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is really take the thread that begins in Romans 1.18 and really pull it through and bring us into chapter 2. Because if we were to read through this in one sitting and have in our congregation a mixed company of Gentiles and Jews, you can imagine that as the Jews are hearing Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to the end of the chapter read, that many of them perhaps would have had this small bit of pride that would swell up in them. And that pride would really be rooted in the fact that they are not like these Gentile sinners. And we read through Romans chapter 1, this first indictment that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The Jew says, not me. I've seen it. I've seen it. And I know that this is the true God. And then he would continue his argument that they exchanged the, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal, man's and mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the Jew again would say, no, not me. Then we get into all of these forms of sexual immorality and idolatry and they would think, no, I would never and I have never and the Jewish people have never wandered away into such idolatry and sexual immorality. And then we would get into this last section, this list of sins and trespasses and iniquities that they are full of all manner of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They disobey their parents. They invent evil. And the Jew again but just give perhaps a brief swelling of pride in his soul. And perhaps it is even that a bit of a grin would roll over his face and say, I cannot be found in Romans 1. And then Paul turns the page, looks directly at the Jew and says, you have no excuse. And you can imagine the flow of this argument and really how it would connect. Because you can see this and you can perhaps even and, and really genuinely, perhaps it is that as we preach through Romans 1, you said over and over and over again, not me. Perhaps it is as we walk through the, the correlation between idolatry and sexual immorality, you said, no, never me. 
And perhaps it is as Blake did this exposition of looking at all of these evils and wickednesses that we see in verses 28 through 32. You say, my name can certainly not be found in that list. And brothers and sisters, if you find yourself there this morning, Paul has a very, very precise word for you. Because we look, at, we look at Romans 1 and we think, what wickedness, what licentiousness, how their wickedness grows day in and day out. And then he looks at the Jew, the one who's perhaps scoffed throughout the entirety of Romans 1 and says, you are just as bad, if not worse. And as we come to this particular text this morning, it's important that we understand that the whole premise of Paul's argument started in Romans 1.18, and he is going to make it abundantly clear that there is not a single soul that will stand before God on the day of judgment with a valid excuse. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1, making our way through verse 5, says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come, and Lord, may we come contrite of heart. Lord, may we see ourselves in every single one of these verses. May we see ourselves as those who are wicked sinners, as those who are the self-righteous judge. And Lord, may you do what the word is always meant to do. May you do what you by your kindness often do, which you lead us to repentance. But Lord, would you lead us to repentance in that glorious fashion that drives us to Jesus, that in our repentance, we would see that there is a perfect propitiation from the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Father, may you cast us low and may Christ be exalted. It is in the name of Jesus Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What I'd like to do first is really examine this charge that Paul gives and really this introductory phrase, therefore you have no excuse. And I would remind you that every time that we stumble upon the word, therefore it's important for us to understand the context. And so as we think about this, this language of you have no excuse does lead us to ask one particular question. And that question is an excuse for what? I mean, genuinely, why is it that he's looking at the Jewish people and saying, you have no excuse? Now, this word is used earlier on in Romans chapter 1, and start, really verse 20. But, but I think we use this word excuse and we've really almost robbed it of its true meaning. The whole basic, uh, basic understanding of excuse is not so much that I have provided an excuse, but I have a desire to excuse myself some, from something. When I was a child, it was very important for me. Before I got up from the table, my mother said, you must ask if you can be excused. And the whole premise is, if I want to get up and walk away from this table, I must ask, can I be excused? Can I walk away from this safely? And really what we see both the Gentiles and the Jewish people doing here is longing to have some excuse from what Romans 1.18 teaches. And if we look at Romans 1.18 and we examine that this premise set forth is that the wrath of God is coming. This wrath of God that is 
furious, that is dangerous, and there should be great trembling before it. And I think it is only rational and reasonable for every single soul that actually sees that wrath to say, how can I escape it? How can I remove myself from it? And if we go all the way back to the book of Habakkuk, where really Paul gets his introductory argument for Romans, he tells Habakkuk to write this thing on tablets, make it plain so that he who reads it might run. So brothers and sisters, the question really is, how can we run? How can we flee from the perfect omniscient omniscient gaze of a just God? And the Gentiles say, I'll just clothe myself in such wickedness that I cannot be found underneath it. And the Jews say, well, we have many excuses. We have many reasons why we should be pardoned from the wrath of God. And I want you to see that as we walk through this, Paul's whole purpose is to disarm every human soul. He wants to make certain that when every soul stands before the judgment seat of God, they are not foolish enough to offer an excuse to their maker that they would look at him and say, I am due your wrath. Brothers and sisters, that is the first cry of the Christian. The first cry of the Christian is, there is no means of rescue in me. I deserve all of your wrath. But let us examine the Jewish excuse. If you read through the argument that's made in Romans chapter two, there are essentially three arguments that the Jewish people make to say, this is our excuse. This is the reason that the wrath of God should not rest on us, that it cannot rest on us. And just to give you a few, first and foremost, if you look at verses one through five, there is this assumption and even that language of, oh man, that shift from those people doing those things to the man. And when you look at this language of the man, we're looking at the particular people of Israel, of ethnic Israel. And they look there and they say, the reason that the wrath of God cannot rest on me is because we are Jews. We are God's chosen people. We can go all the way back into Genesis and see that God has a unique covenant with us. And what's so interesting about it is as they make this play, they genuinely do look at Romans 1, those Gentiles, and say, we are ontologically better And since we are ontologically better, since that covenant God made with the Jews, then we must be excused from his wrath. We are the objects of his loving favor. And so they say, well, I'm I'm a Jew and thus I must be spared. And going on a bit further in Romans 2, 12 through 24, this argument set forth is that we have the law. And since we have the law, we are able to judge by it. And so they look at the Gentiles and they said, those people deserve death. But what's most interesting about these Jewish people is as they're looking at it, they're saying, not only do we have the law, but we are actually judging rightly by it. Have you ever considered this as you walk through the Jewish understanding of the law as they began to cast judgments elsewhere? They really were looking at the law of God and saying, these people deserve this. Brothers and sisters, and that's written plain in the scriptures. They judge and seemingly judge rightly. And is is their right judgment a means of excuse? Well, they certainly think so. They think that because they have a right to judge and they have a right standard by which to judge, that they themselves are excused. We certainly see in this their mishandling of the law because they're so busy comparing other people to it that they never see their own trespass. But not only do they aim to excuse themselves by the law, they also aim to excuse themselves by circumcision. In Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, it starts like this, for circumcision is indeed, indeed is of value. Let's just pause there. I don't want to go any further. The Jews believed that circumcision was of value, but they believed that it held a unique value, a 
perhaps more significant value that if I had this one thing, if the mark of God was on me, then how is it that the wrath of God could also rest upon me? And in this, they had exalted this mark that God had given, this mark of a covenant, and they had exalted it to such a a, a powerful place that if you had this one thing, it matters not what you do with the rest of the law. It matters not if you trespass God's law day in and day out. If you wake up breathing out hatred and vitriol toward him, if you had this mark, then you were excused. They were convinced of this. And as they are considering this wrath of God revealed, they say, certainly not. It cannot fall on us for we are God's chosen people. And if we are God's chosen people, we have God's law, these blessed oracles by which we can judge and judge rightly. Not only that, but we bear in our bodies the mark that, that, that seals us into the covenant. And they say, the wrath of God certainly cannot rest upon me. They look over at the Gentiles and they say, perhaps you, because I can see according to the law that I was given that you are wicked. And if you are wicked, then you deserve this wrath and fury. So they excuse themselves. They have all of these reasons by which they should not undergo the wrath of God. And it's interesting what this did to them. As they begin to make these excuses, immediately what they do is they begin to exalt themselves and place themselves on the judge's bench. They say, since we have all of these things, since we are God's chosen people, since we have his oracles, and since we have the mark of the covenant, we then have the ability to judge everyone else. And we will even judge them, interestingly enough, by an appropriate standard, by the law of God. But they place themselves on this bench, on this ruling bench where they have a gavel and they look over at who are now their brothers in Christ and they see idolatry and they immediately drop the gavel and say, we serve the true God. You are the ones who are idolaters. And they say, there's a just penalty for your idolatry. And that just penalty is death. They hear Paul's words over the Gentiles and they say, yes, get them. And they go on and they see sexual immorality and they immediately proclaim the sentence. They say, these people deserve death. These people have trespassed the law of God. His moral upright standard that he has even instituted in nature itself, this this covenant that was all the way back in the garden and they have waged a war against it. Certainly they should be cast out. They deserve wrath and fury. And they see that sexual immorality and they say they deserve to die. And then they see their envy, their murder, their strife, deceit and, and malice. And you can imagine living in Rome as a Jew and examining all of the wickedness around you and even being made uncomfortable by it because of the law that you've been given by God. And you see it all, all this wickedness and you say every one of them, the wrath of God is revealed against them. They would look back on Romans 1.18 and they would say, yes, the wrath of God is coming for them. All the while, never realizing that in their own judgments, they have essentially dropped the gavel on themselves. And I want you to notice this particular text. It says there at the very beginning, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. We've seen those judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that when we begin to look at a moral standard, immediately what we do is we, we, we push it away from self and always onto others. I'm convinced that one of the greatest errors in listening to a sermon is you're busy applying it to your neighbor as opposed to yourself. And this is not something new. We have always done this. It is the natural repercussion of fallen man. What's the original thing that Adam does is God confronts him. 
What's most interesting is he looks at God's confrontation as he has rebelled and eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He looks at God and immediately begins to place blame elsewhere. He places it first and foremost on God who gave him the woman and secondly, the woman. He immediately pushes the guilt away, but brothers and sisters, the guilt is already present. He can deny it all he likes, but he is guilty before a holy God. So it is with the Jewish people. As they begin to make all of their decrees and even rightly applying the law of God in regard to idolatry, they have dropped the gavel on themselves both individually and nationally. If we were to do just a brief examination of the Jewish people, and in particular, the idolatry that they participated in. We could start in Exodus with the golden calf where they crafted for themselves an idol and began to worship it for, the, for their deliverance out of Egypt. We can see the numerous times they returned to Baal and worship him. And perhaps the greatest form of idolatry ever committed is that when the Messiah shows up, when the image of the invisible God makes himself known, the Jewish people say, that's not him. That is the depth of idolatry. It is perhaps the the greatest indication of the most heinous of idolatry. You give the name of the covenant God to an image. When the true God shows up, you say, that's not him. So are they guilty of idolatry? Most certainly. Then they begin to divvy out a sentence for sexual immorality. Goodness, if we were to take all of the time to examine the ways that Israel had been sexually immoral throughout redemptive history, we would not have time to complete this particular text. Certainly, we see Israel and the daughters of Moab. We see Samson. We see David. These men committing heinous acts, trespassing the law of God. But you can imagine that even if David was sitting here, he would begin to look at others before himself. We know this for certain. Because when David takes Bathsheba, immediately the prophet Nathan shows up and says, let me tell you a story about a man who took a precious ewe lamb, took it while he had all the wealth that he could possibly have. He had hundreds of thousands of sheep and he wanted to sacrifice one so that he could provide some some joy for his guest and feasting. And instead of sacrificing one of his own, he goes and he takes this other lamb that was dear and precious to its owner and he kills it. And David begins to immediately rage. And he says, who is this man? He must die. And Nathan looks back at him and says, you are the man. You are the man. And so as Israel begins to look over this, they are reminded of their own trespass and iniquity. They're reminded of their own sexual immorality. They look, they look around and they see the penalty for envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. And I would simply point your attention to the entire book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And every single time they descended into idolatry that ultimately led into captivity until God by grace raised up a judge. You see, when they drop the gavel on others, it is most clear that they themselves deserve the wrath and fury of God. Because even their standard says they deserve to die. Even their standard. And so they make all of this play and they say, no, I must be excused from the wrath of God because I am a Jew. There is something unique about me. And let me tell you what is unique about them. They have trespassed the law of God. They have idolized various things in creation. They are just like their fellow man, guilty before God. And perhaps it is that even in the midst of examining this text, you think much like I did as I was preparing it. What fools? 
I mean, you look at these people, you look at the Jews, and you can even maybe make the simple practical application to many of their reasons they say they would be excused are the very same reasons that we would excuse ourselves. Goodness gracious, what gifts and blessings the church of God has. But brothers and sisters, we must always be the first to say that I am foremost among sinners and deserve the wrath and fury of God, lest we condemn ourselves. And here we see them make all of these plays. And I think what's most important to see here for just a moment of practical application is we do not need to be like the Gentiles who continue on in licentiousness. We most certainly do not need to be like the Jews who look at them and condemn them. And even as Paul makes this argument, I find that if I lean one way, I lean toward this perspective of I'm a little bit better than my fellow man. I see them. I see their wickedness. There's much reason for God to excuse me. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I do of all these things. But brothers and sisters, not a single one of those things will excuse me before the righteous God. Not one. Because at the exact same time where there is anything good produced in me, we know first and foremost, that is only by the Spirit of God. And anything wicked that flows from me is me. And thus I deserve His wrath and fury. The self-righteous are not only without excuse. It is apparent in their own judgments that they deserve condemnation. When they drop the gavel, they drop it on themselves. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful that we do not repeat this great offense. And even now, we must not drop it on the Jewish people in the Roman day. For we, must, we very well may, be, may have been just like them. But it is important to go a bit further and to ask the question, what are they, what are they, what are they essentially declaring as they cast judgment? And I'll tell you, What's interesting about it is their judgments are not in error. I mean, you even see Paul confirm that their judgment is true. So let's look at the text. Uh, Romans 2, 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Now notice verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Their judgment is not wrong. Their judgment's not wrong. When that gavel falls, when they condemn all around them and they ultimately condemn themselves, it is true that the judgment of God rightly rests on them. And so when we press forward into this, we see the basic argument that Paul makes is that the wrath of God revealed in Romans 1.18 will come to all who practice evil, every single one. It will fall on all who practice evil. Now, I think there is an internal question here that we must take a brief moment to examine. Is why does the judgment of God rightly fall on those who practice evil outright as well as those who appear moral and good externally? And I am convinced that we are far more guilty of this than we believe. We really do. We are prone to excuse those who seem morally upright, who perhaps clothe themselves and whitewash their tombs so excellently that we would look at them and call them beautiful. But brothers and sisters, God's judgment is not like man's judgment. We should look at the judge of all the earth and assume and assume rightly that he will always do what is right and good and just. And brothers and sisters, that should cause us to quake. Why? It should cause us to quake because first, the Gentile sinners who are in opposition to God, they descend into all forms of licentiousness. They essentially multiply their wickedness to cover themselves and to wage a whole, to wage a, a wicked war against the image of God that they bear. They go to war with it. 
And so certainly we would say, yes, the wrath of God should rest on them. Look at all of their wickedness and their evilness. But then we look at the self-righteous Jews and they declare themselves righteous by external works, though internally wicked. They are indeed those whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. And I'm convinced that this state is the most dangerous state to be in that exists. Why? Because first and foremost, the world around them applauds. Look at how good they are. Look at how right they are. Look at their deeds. Aren't they so blessed? We have unbelievers that we have literally given the word saint to. Whitewashed tombs. The world applauds them. But brothers and sisters, what we often miss is that the world applauds them. They are waging war against God's righteousness. How so? Because they think so little of God's righteousness that they think they can muster up something equivalent to it. It is an impossibility. There is only one thing that leads you to a place of such arrogance, and it is not, it is not just a high view of self. It is a low view of God. You do not believe him as righteous as he says he is. You do not believe him as holy as he says he is. As even the angels declare over and over again, holy, holy, holy. You would perhaps prescribe him one, but never three. He is the holy and righteous judge of all the earth. Why is it that God would condemn, that he would wage a holy war against all who are evil? The primary reason is because he is righteous and we are not. And perhaps one of the greatest ways that we see this illustrated is by our low view of sin. We think sin is something that is just a little pet peeve or perhaps just a little marring of the flesh. But brothers and sisters, that is not what it is. It is an assault on God's glory. It says that there is things here below that are better than him. Piper said it this way, and I think he said it rather well. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. It is no surprise then that he rightly judges those who practice wickedness because it is ultimately a rejection of him, the perfect, holy, righteous God. So why is it that he wages this war? Why is it that the justice of God rightly falls on those who practice such things? Because God is just and we are not. But it is important, what is that divine judgment? I mean, we think about this divine judgment and I'm convinced that we really do believe we've bought into some lies of the prosperity gospel where where we commit some type of wickedness and then God perhaps judges here in some fashion or form. And it is true that there are consequences to sin, but we must understand that the true penalty of sin is death. Now, we don't understand this word anymore. We think it literally is ceasing to breathe and that is certainly not the case. That is not death. That is some physical shadow of it, but it is not the true form. When God says that the penalty of sin is death, he is essentially saying you can have all of the wickedness that you have desired. You have hated me. You have spurned me. Fine. You can have existence apart from my grace and loving kindness, and you can have only my wrath and fury. That is hell. That is death. 
His judgment is pure and right and good. And when we understand sin as this great iniquity, this great wickedness, this heinous thing against him, it is no surprise that the wages of sin are indeed so severe because it is the ultimate evil in the world. It is the height of wickedness. And so when we see God judge and judge rightly, when we see that the judgment of God must rightly fall on those who practice evil, it is only reasonable to see such a harsh consequence because brothers and sisters, sin demands a harsh consequence when it is against the holy God. He will not excuse one and there is none so light that he would simply gloss over it. Brothers and sisters, have you considered our father Adam? What was his trespass? eating of a tree and you think plunge the whole human race into death because of eating from a tree? No, brothers and sisters, it was not just eating from a tree. It was the fact that he had rebelled against the holy God, his maker. He was made in his image and this dust from the ground looks back at him and says, I will have anything but you. It is right that he is judged. It is right that every sinner has the judgment of God resting upon them. Because brothers and sisters, sin is indeed wicked. Adam rebelled and in Adam's rebellion, we all continue to rebel day in and day out. Now, if I could, I'd like to perhaps invite you into a courtroom. Because as we consider this whole thing, you have this this language laid out of judgment falling, of judgment resting. And you can even imagine Paul making all of these charges. He's made these charges against the Gentile, and now he's making these charges against the Jews. And they stand before this judgment and they say, perhaps in their own defense, the Gentile would say, "But, but I was ignorant. Lord, I know that sin is wicked. I know that I deserve to die for it, but I was ignorant of your glory. I was ignorant of the beauties of the gospel. I was ignorant of all of these things. And so perhaps it is you would spare me the judgment of God. Ignorance is not even a valid defense in human courtrooms. Do you think that ignorance will be a valid defense before the holy God? You think you're gonna look at him and say, Lord, I didn't know. Psalm 19 would beg to differ. Romans 1, 18 through 22 says that there's a constant proclamation of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, the major issue with this defense is it's not even valid. God has made his glory known. And so if you were to stand before him on that day of judgment and say, Lord, I was ignorant, I can assure you, you will not be excused from judgment. But perhaps it is. And perhaps even more likely for those of us in this room, that we would stand before God and give a judgment that was more like the, the, or give an excuse more like what the Jewish people would do. They would say, see, look at all the good I did. I gave to the poor. I did everything I could for my fellow man. I built wells in the most impoverished areas of the world. I did all of these good deeds. And perhaps there would be one even so bold to stand before him and say, I have kept your law perfectly. But the issue is that no amount of moral do-goodisms or seemingly right judgments on evil will excuse you from God's righteous judgment. Why? Because God's courtroom isn't filled with scales. It's filled with justice. We genuinely have bought into this scale system where if my good outweighs my bad, then God will excuse me. Hear me. He will not. 
And the reason he will not is because he is right and good and just. And brothers and sisters, no amount of good that you can do here below will excuse your evil. Why? Because a just judge always punishes evil. Always. And as we see this unfold, you see that not only that there is no reasonable excuse, but we ultimately see this gavel, this just, right, holy gavel fall. And with fire in his eyes, God looks at every sinner and says, my judgment rests on you. And in this moment, we see the unbeliever goes to his judgment. This judgment of God that falls and falls rightly, The unbeliever is taken at the just hand of God and he is cast into hell, into the lake of fire where he will indeed suffer the just penalty of his perversions. The unbeliever, the judgment of God rests on him. But in this same courtroom, there is another that essentially awaits his own judgment. And as he begins to see the gavel fall, and he knows that he is wicked. He knows that he's trespassed the law of God. He knows that no moral do-goodisms will allow him to enter into the presence of God eternally. He knows of his own wickedness, trespass, and iniquity. And he awaits for one to come and to cast him into the lake of fire. But instead, he's gathered. And as he's gathered, he's ushered into the chambers of the judge. He is sat at a table and he is served with the finest of wine and the freshest of bread. Why? The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I certainly hope that there is none in this room who would think that you do not deserve it. But the question is, why were you allowed to come to that table? Why is it that we come, that we partake of this bread, that we partake of this wine? Why is it that we celebrate these things and that we come joyously And it's because the judgment of God has rightly fallen. Not excused, not pardoned, justified. I want to point a couple of verses to you, out to you, because I think they're rather helpful for this particular text. Notice verse 2 again. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, I would imagine most of you are rather familiar with this text. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But you know, the apostle John has a little bit more to add. In John 12, 31, it says, Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Brothers and sisters, we do not serve a God that pardons. We serve a God who has provided a perfect propitiation in His Son. This means that when the gavel falls, you need not tremble. Why? Because the judgment of God that was due you, the reason that you were escorted to the table instead of the lake of fire is because God has executed his judgment on you in Christ. When we look at this particular language in Isaiah 53, it's this constant language of laying on him and placing upon him because brothers and sisters, it was my trespass and iniquity. It was my self-righteous disdain for his righteousness that was laid on Christ that I might dine at his table forevermore. 
And I love what 1 John 2, 2 says to kind of give us a little bit more understanding of this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And the reason I bring this to your attention is because I'm convinced that as Christians, we are prone to believe that God's judgment will somehow eventually catch up to us, that we might be excused for a little bit of time, that we might stand before God at judgment and maybe be excused there, but throughout the expanse of eternity, perhaps it is that God in his omniscience will remember your sin. Brothers and sisters, if he remembers your sin, he remembers it laid on his son. If he remembers your sin, he remembers it conquered. He remembers that his justice shoved a sword in the side of the Savior that we might be redeemed. That's what he remembers. And so what is it? What is our great confidence? Our great confidence is that God's justice rightly falls on the wicked. But it is important for us to remember that God's judgment for his elect fell. And oh, how peculiar was its falling. It fell on Christ, for he is able to bear it and carry it away. You ask, where then is the judgment that I am due? We say it has fallen on Christ and it is no more.